0: I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For over 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store in Charlotte, North Carolina. On this podcast, we unlock the stories of people's lives through the stories of what they wore. These aren't conversations about fashion, these are conversations about people. Toni Goodman is a legend in the fashion industry. She's responsible for some of the most striking fashion images in the past 20 years and has worked with some of the industry's most iconic personalities from Diana Vreeland to Anna Wintour. We hosted Tani at a book signing at our Los Angeles location this summer. I love spending the morning with Tani to learn more about her childhood and the incredible career she so generously shares in her new retrospective, Point of View. Connie Goodman. I'm so glad you're here in California.
1: I am so pleased to be here. It's a real treat.
0: So last night you were at the Getty?
1: I was at the Getty. My it... first time. I hate to admit it, but you know, <laughs> after all of these years, it's the first time that I've been to the Getty. And what'd you think? Unbelievable. Yeah. Just so fabulous and wonderful. And the spirit of it and the fact that all the people are out on the lawn and their kids and it is free and it is open. It mm-hmm. has so much to offer. It was Fabulous.
0: And you're promoting your new book, Point of View? Yes. Tell me what your first fashion memory was as a child.
1: I think that my first fashion memory was definitely of my mother. She was very beautiful. She still is. She's 98 now. Wow. You know, these were the days where you she dressed to go to the bank, right down to you know, gloves yep. properly. And she had a blue, like a sky blue boucle mm-hmm. suit, slim, slim skirt, fitted jacket, I think it even had maybe a Nehru collar or something, mm-hmm. gold buttons. And the lining of it was shocking bright emerald green oh my silk. Oh. And I just loved the fact that it was the surprise. Nobody saw. Right, she, right. You know, it was, she was buttoned up to the top, so nobody ever saw the lining, but it was there. Yeah. And that was probably one of the first kind of fashion fascinating f- and the fascination of fashion f- for me, I think. Probably.
0: Where Where did she get it?
1: I think she may have had it made. Okay. She had a dressmaker named Ami uh-huh. on Madison Avenue, and Amy used to... So, mommy, in, in other words, she picked the lining. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah, my yeah. mother. Exactly, yeah. That was my mother.
0: And your father was a dresser, too?
1: My father was very elegant. Yeah. And actually, somebody said to me the other day about to who did I think influenced me the most, my mother and my father, and I, it was obviously my mother. But then I thought, you know, now that I'm getting older and I'm wearing more... You know, I'm always wearing pants now and, you know, a a tailored jacket that has got an inside pocket, which is a man's jacket. But the inside pocket is really important. You need that to put your things in. I am actually dressing a lot like my father.
0: The only thing I can't get used to, we have a men's store and I'm their best female customer. (laughs) But the only thing I can't get used to is the opposite buttoning. You know, men's jackets button on the opposite direction, I think. Yes. yes, they do, and you know why, right? Do no, you know tell what it why. is?
1: They button because of drawing the sword. So really, the, when it buttons over the right, because when you drew your sword, you would not get caught on oh. the on the jacket. I
0: love that so much. That's true, <laughs> and and they dress for dinner. I think they dress You've for dinner. To and they
1: dress for dinner. I and mean, did the, you
0: girls, do you, girls and boy, dress for dinner? You have, no, you have no. two sisters and a brother.
1: Two sisters and a brother. We all went to, you know, school. We'd come home from school in our uniforms, so we didn't have to worry about dressing at all. Yeah. I mean, uniforms kind of are the great equalizer. I think I, so. I think they're kind of a godsend, really, in a school environment. I do, too. My parents, it was very informal, but it was formal. I mean, we all went to the dinner table together. We all sat together. Mummy changed into a long skirt. And it was, once again, it was her design. It was a circle skirt, so it was, had a lot of volume to it, no seams, no nothing, that was made out of red felt. Mm. Not, not you know, wool, or, mm-hmm. but felt. Hmm. And it was a great color of red. It was sort of a tomato red. It had a lot of orange in it. And then she would simply put on a little cashmere sweater, and, you know, she'd have her pearls on, put a belt on, and that's that's what she wore all the time. And Daddy actually changed out of his jacket, his suit jacket, and into a smoking jacket. I mean, it sounds so pretentious, but <laughs> it really it. it really wasn't because it, it was a signal that they had departed from their daily life and were now joining us. And they were imposing a certain am- amount of formality, Declan. which I think was a good discipline in a way. And it also taught us that manners are graciousness That's yes. that's the point of having manners, is that you can be gracious and, and generous with other people. Exactly. And, you know, it's something I certainly tried to teach my children.
0: Did you all sit down for dinner?
1: I, tr- I really tried. You know, yeah, I really mean, weird. I was a single mom from the age of, well, Evie was two and a half, I yeah. guess. And so I really tried, but I traveled a lot. It's hard. <laughs> it is hard, but you'd be surprised. I mean, it's we wonderful. had... We had lots of fascinating things to tell my parents, I'm <laughs> sure, that were absolutely nothing. But it was, you know, but it was, it was expressing interest in one another. Yes, and that's communication, of course, which is the most vital part of life.
0: In your book, you talked about your mother not making her life separate from yours, and that she took y'all, when she wanted to go to the museum, it wasn't because she wanted to take you, she wanted to go and y'all came along with her if she wanted to paint in the park. How did that inform your creativity?
1: The, I think the inclusion that Mummy had of her family, she gave up her career as a textile designer. Mm-hmm. She had four children in six years, and she she really devoted herself to, to her family. And the devotion was was an entirety, so, She was also devoted to the arts. She was devoted to all of the creative arts, and she had friends that were in the arts. So we had a full exposure, and we were always part of, you know, the dinner party. We would say hi to the guests, and we would, you know, pass the crudités, (laughs) and, you know, we were good little soldiers, (laughs) but we were exposed to artists right from the start.
0: So, you went to Brerley and you talked about the uniforms. Did you make your uniforms more punk or how, how did you
1: Well, it was harder punk. <laughs> it was hippie. Yeah. So, it was not punk. But, yes, of course we did. We yeah. were, you know, this was the, you know, I graduated in 1970. So, yeah. the, you know, I was, you know, 15 in 1968, which was a very pivotal year, yeah. of course. So we were we were very engaged with all of that, too. And, you know, this was a moment of a kind of explosion of freedom of expression. So, of, you know, we were... Uh, you know, I think I was one of the original goths, if you ask <laughs> Wendy, if you ask my sister Wendy, because I, I got uh, very enamored with mascara, <laughs> and I never took it off. I had layers of mascara on and Wendy and I shared a room and she would just take a look at the pillow when I got up in the morning and she would just say Tony, don't you think it's about time that you just refreshed it a little bit it was quite golf actually
0: I love it mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you and Wendy says that your 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 big sort of punk moment or your your standout first real fashion moment was when you had your hair cut by Vidal Sassoon.
1: So yeah. Well, it wasn't the famous one that Peggy Moffat had right. that was very symmetrical. It was the asymmetrical one. So it was like really, oh, wow. you know, you always had your head kind of cocked to one side <laughs> to even accommodate getting, yeah, even it just, it was weighted that way, actually. And it was, you know, I had a full mouth of braces. This was not a pretty picture. And I was really skinny. But I was out there, you know, I was, I wanted to, you know, it was, it wasn't about beauty. It was about kind of the dare. Yeah. I guess that's what I was gravitating to at that point. And then started modeling. I started modeling as a lark in the summer of 10th grade because I was looking for a summer job and Leo Lerman, who was the editor-in-chief of Mademoiselle magazine, was a friend of the par- my parents, mm-hmm. and I went to see Leo, and I said, you know, can I just have, you know, be an intern for the summer? And he said, well, we don't have anything like that to offer you, but what, you know, you're tall and skinny. Why don't you see if you, do you want to try modeling? So I thought, oh, well, yeah, of course. And he sent me around, and we did some. I did tests, and I started to photograph with one of their very, very good photographers, David McCabe, and the, his pictures are in the, in the book. It was a summer job, and then mm-hmm. I went back to. It's not a fun um, job. Yeah, <laughs> summer modeling job. And then I went back to school, and I decided to take a year off between high school and art school and try it again. Mm-hmm. And that's then I did do it for a year.
0: Finished art school and then went on to work with Diana Vreeland at the Met?
1: Yeah. Well, and I didn't finish art school. I dropped okay. out of art school. <laughs> so... I went, to, uh, when I was at, in art school, I spent a, a year in Italy mm-hmm. doing, you know, one of the exchanges you spent. it, But then I came back, I was supposed to resume my studies at Philadelphia College of Art and did not. Yeah. So I was back in the city. I, I actually did not, I wasn't happy in Philadelphia. Because and you wanted to get back to New York or just... No, because I had been very discouraged. I had an art teacher who yeah. said to me, you know, you're never going to be an artist. And I thought, I was in the freshman year, I had was just starting out and I was having... A very remarkable exposure compared to what I was used to at Brearley in the city. And with a lot of cultural exposure, but it was a very safe exposure because I was with my parents and there had been a certain curation as to what I was seeing. When I got to Philadelphia, one of the first kind of evening visiting artists was Vito Acconci, who did, showed a film of himself in Super 8, you know, very grainy Uh Super 8, and the film was of him walking towards the camera, walking away from the camera, walking towards the camera, walking away from the camera, stark naked. He had his penis (laughs) tucked between his legs, and then it moved on to him burning wax, you know, a candle with wax burning onto his chest, and I just thought, you know, it was was fabulous. It was really (laughs) fabulous, because I didn't, because it was, once again, it was freedom of expression and license. You know, you do yeah. have license to think independently and differently, totally differently. It was really revelatory for me, but it was a huge challenge. I didn't know what to do with it, and and this teacher, Harry Soviak, identified it, and he said, your taste is too good. You are not going to let go of your good taste, it has been. It's part of your DNA. It, you've been ingrained with it, and it's going to keep you from ever getting past it into something else. Which was a really interesting observation. It's
0: very interesting, but and probably a lot of truth to it. What do you? And, and it made you mad then. What do you think about it now?
1: Well, I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't listened to him. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was very intimidated. I really was frightened, and you know, I was mortified because I was trying so hard and. Part of the effort was using my good taste,
0: but I also think that it's so funny that you really have become—I mean, it, you became one of the great artists of our time. I mean, in, well, in you're in a different medium. I mean, it—it it, it wasn't a medium that existed then, almost. Will you tell me about Diana Breland and that experience? And and you had a—you had an interesting cast of characters that worked with you.
1: Well, <laughs> she—you know—she came to the Met through Thomas Hoving, and he was fabulous. He was the director of the museum then. And she had just been fired from Vogue, and it was brutal. And he swooped down, brought her to the Met, and had a fabulous idea, which was, let's marry two cultures, one which was a very traditional culture, Mm -hmm. and one that was a very flamboyant culture. And she came in, she opened up the Costume Institute, and you know nobody it, even knew that it was there practically. Did, but know, it was there? They it did was there. Ha- oh, yeah. it was there, and it had a very extensive collection, huh. and everything was climate-controlled and beautiful vaults, wow. and it was very, very carefully curated and very well taken care and of. And always in the basement? And always in the basement. Yeah. And Stella Blum was the curator, and you know she was kind of railroaded by Diana Vreeland, mm-hmm. who came in and was, you know, her irreverence was what took it out of the basement mm-hmm. so that people really saw it as a, another way of expression. Again, once again, it's communication and mm-hmm. expression. And she, her audacity was the thing that was so intriguing for people, I think. And it made it very approachable at the same time.
0: Right. And Andre, you worked with Andre. Andre Leontali <laughs> From North was Carolina. there. We were all
1: there. We were... Um, there Fernando Sanchez. Fernando Sanchez. Georgia. Georgia Santangelo. Sant'Angelo. Yeah. Oh, there, there were... A lot of us. Yeah. You know, they. Could, I, I was, a, you know, a, a stayer. I stuck yeah. in there for four years, but a lot of them were transient. Right. You know, they came and went.
0: What do you remember the most about her? You know, her
1: demeanor, for starters, was so extraordinary that, you <laughs> you know, you were in a presence was right away. Was she tall? No, she was not tall. Uh, she was but she petite. just had a big personality. She was petite, and <laughs> the picture in the book, I think, really does, you know, tell a lot because she's the gesture. It's yes. all about that finger pointing. And that <laughs> finger pointing really told you a lot without any words necessary whatsoever. She, her impatience was a strength because it huh. made you not second guess. If you made the wrong turn, then you take a t- take a turn away from it and make it a better turn. Mm-hmm. And that kind of confidence, y- you don't have the confidence, but you're forced into being confident with the right. gesture, uh, eventually you learn to trust it. Right which was, was so important to you in your career.
0: hmm And then you moved on to Ann Klein, Calvin Klein.
1: I mean, before that, you have to remember, I worked with, you know, I went from working at the Met to working at the New York Times with Gary Donovan. Right. My first oh my photo shoot was with Helmut <laughs> Newton, talk oh about, uh, how, you know, hit the <laughs> ground running. Then from there, I went freelance, and from there, I went to Calvin Klein, where when I landed at Calvin's, you know, I was really instantly at home because it was a sensibility. His discipline and precision was really appealed to me. So it was a very, very uh, good match for me. But
0: it was... But that was a different title too. I mean, it was a totally different thing than you'd done before, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was advertising. Advertising. I mean, I I, I was
1: vice president of advertising, but I was really just the, the stylist essentially on the the advertising
0: and during a really seminal important time
1: yeah (laughs) where it was very you know the advertising was very focused but it was very much i was really in that mindset the the calvin klein mindset the whole time which i was very very comfortable in yeah but then when liz came to america to take over harper's bazaar from british vogue they brought her over from british vogue it was all of a sudden i didn't i had all of the playground to play in It wasn't just in the Calvin Klein sandbox, which I loved being in. But all of the other things came into play. And that's really when, you know, I got on the boat. The first shoot that I did was at the Louis Kahn Center for British Art, I think, at Yale. And in those days, you did all the production yourself. So I had to, you know, find somebody at Yale who would let a fashion group come in and take a picture. And that, you know, all of yeah. a sudden I could do anything that I wanted to do, because that's the way Liz wanted it done. She huh. she picked the people that worked on the magazine with her to do what she, you know, she trusted what they stood for. And she wanted them to go out and do what they felt best doing.
0: One of the things I really loved was when you talked about the, your personal life kind of morphing into the pictures and Christy Tarlington
1: often playing your mother well the pictures that we did of Christy at Cooper Union which yeah. is where Mummy went to art school. oh wow yeah. so we went right into the studios that Mummy <laughs> must have been in and Christy does look a lot like my mother oh. then and she was wearing very simple clothes and her hair was pulled back and not exactly the chignon that my mother used to wear all the time <laughs> but close enough and she really represented a very understated elegance that really was my mother's essence essence exactly Thank yeah you.
0: so can you talk to me a little bit about when inspiration of that and is it something that I mean do you have notebooks where you write down memories or ideas and and I think for me the thing that's really fascinating about it is how that coincides with the collections just because, from what I know from seeing the collections, you know you don't always find all the things you want to find. Mm-hmm. So, does the idea come first, or does the do the collections come first, and they remind you of something, and then you? I mean, how does it happen, and how far in advance does it happen? I mean, I'm so fascinated well, by that I part. Well,
1: I mean, it it is systematic. You know, you do have an outline that you have to work with, right. and the outline is the collections, right? Because you're you're introducing the reader to the upcoming collections at vogue at at bazaar it was it was different because we all ha- were satellites of our own interests and we would approach the collections picking what fed right. our interests so when you're
0: when you're at the show you're making notes of things yeah.
1: that Okay. Yeah, or you see something, you think, oh, my God, that's, you know, fantastic, yeah. and wouldn't it be great, you know, here or there.
0: And and by the way, back when you started that, you, there were no cell phones, so how are you, you just, you, are you drawing a picture of it? You're
1: drawing a picture. Yeah. And, and I, are you remembering
0: I, I, it's look number 47?
1: Yeah. You, what uh-huh. you do is you draw the picture, and then you go back to the showroom, and you see it in yeah. real life, and you can sketch it some more. But, you, yeah, you, I mean, I... Because I could draw, made sketch notes, but other editors write word notes. Interesting.
0: Do, do you have the journals that you have? I do. I have you some do? of them,
1: and I have a whole stack of them. And I keep on thinking, am I just going to ditch these things, or should I keep <laughs> them, or what should I do with them? And do
0: they look? Pre- I mean, do you like the way they look when you flip through them? Sort of.
1: You know, they're okay. <laughs>
0: they're not. You know, they're working sketches. So, <laughs> so at Vogue, you produced over one hundred and eighty-six covers, which sounds incredible and counting I'm doing counting. another one tomorrow uh, right. next week. <laughs> two days yeah is there one that has been the most meaningful for you or one that stands out as well
1: the first lady of course yeah I mean she you know the experience was you know I mean it was it was a moment of such triumphant hope for this country and to be with her and to meet him mm-hmm. was you know beyond words really
0: and there's so many variables around around a shoot like that. Does she does she try on the clothes beforehand? Do you? I mean, how do you? Well, you have to work
1: the- very specifically with her. She had um, she has a stylist that that works with her. Right. Um, I wish I could remember Meredith's last name because she's incredible. So I worked very closely with Meredith, and then Meredith would take it in. I was not doing a fitting with her. It was, you know, Meredith would do the fitting with her. And Meredith would say Um, she
0: feels more comfortable in this sort of silhouette, this color, this Yeah, there was a lot of communication beforehand. And also, is that communicated... To Anna or to, or is it, I mean, all of that is communicated the whole time? Yeah,
1: everybody's in in conversation the whole time.
0: I mean, are there many alternatives in the shoot itself? You don't go with just one dress. No, no, no,
1: you have have a lot of options.
0: Do you know when you're in it, which one's going to make it almost all the time?
1: You have a pretty good idea. I mean, you've done so much homework. You've done so much kind of mental and visual and technical preparation for it Uh that you have a pretty good idea in a circumstance like that where there is a lot of control and there's a lot of um, timing control that you, you do have a pretty good sense of what's going to The to other work. question
0: is about the photographer itself. Do you, before that too, are you thinking about that the photographer's style? Like if you're working with Stephen Meisel or something, it's going to be a different sort of a picture than it is with Annie. Like, And do
1: you... you totally. And
0: you're thinking that beforehand, that it's, she's probably going to do it this way, or he's probably going to do it this way, and so these are the clothes that would probably relate more?
1: Yes. I yeah. mean, it, it is... It, when, when you talk about a photograph representing a collaboration, that is What it is, it's the exchanger. Everyone is sensitive to
0: and makeup and hair as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. The whole team is brought together with all of their strengths in in you know intact. I mean, that's what you do. So you're not going to give a dress to Annie Leibovitz that she's not going to understand. Right, there would be no point. (laughs) Right, there would just be no point. And you're not going to give a big boring something or other or a very. Well, not big boring, I'm not to put it that way, but something you don't think would excite Stephen right. Mizell or Stephen Klein.
0: One of the things you've said to me, you said recently in Charlotte, was to trust mistakes, mm-hmm. which I loved so much because I'd never heard it that simply. You know, it's always, you, know, you always hear sort of like a longer version of that, but trust mistakes was just, I thought, the clearest and,
1: and best. Well, it's, also, it's such a good lesson yeah. because, you know, they come... They come at you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't avoid, you can't escape them. Just, they just come at you. And if you don't dodge them, but you, you know, embrace them, then you can be so wonderfully surprised by what comes, what comes next. Yeah. And that kind of is life. You know, life does throw some zingers, and <laughs> you have to be prepared for what
0: you know, will come next. Can you remember a favorite mistake that happened that turned out um, beautifully?
1: Of on, on a cover or? Well, I think, I mean, one of the ones that is a, a famous citation is the picture of Amber with the car up on the on the sidewalk. Right. Because that shoot was, we went to Poughkeepsie, uh-huh. New York, <laughs> specifically for one location with that had to do with the train station. And at the very last minute, once we got up there and we were all encamped in this hotel, that it, we didn't get the permission to, to do it. And uh-huh. so we were all sitting there thinking, you know, we we had clothes that were quite specific, they didn't translate, you know, they were quite conservative. It was a suit story and then all of a sudden these cars came rump- rumbling down the the main stream <laughs> and we saw one after the other, it was a whole convention, right. I guess of these oh of these my cars. And it was just like jaw-dropping literally did we you all run just out into the street and yes, stop we it. Did. Oh, we did. it we literally <laughs> just said we that there's the shoot right there and you know it was stephen that got the car up on the sidewalk but we were in poughkeepsie so the sidewalk was so inviting yeah you know, it was this big wide sidewalk and there was the bank vault and it was just it all came together amazing and that gremlin which does show up often on the set sometimes with malintent sometimes with good intent <laughs> was really with us on that shoot.
0: I love that. The other thing that was really remarkable to me, looking at all of the covers, was how the industry went. You could really see it physically going from model-driven to Mm celebrity-driven. What has that been like, and
1: how, how did that affect your work? Well, it happened overnight. I mean, it's kind of overnight. It started to happen at Harper's Bazaar. You started to see the celebrities take hold. And then the first year that I was at Vogue, it was all... The, the girls were still raining of yeah. the covers. I think that the first celebrity cover I did was actually Marion Jones, huh. the Olympic field yeah. tra- star. Track and field, yeah. yeah track I and think, field. Mm-hmm. And then it became kind of practically magical because you all of a sudden had a whole new audience that was picking up the magazine. A lot of the magazine was um, newsstand sales at that point. Right. And so you didn't just have the fashion interests picking up the magazine, you had the celebrity interests, and you had somebody who was watching a movie that was about to come out, and Julia Roberts was about to be in this. And, you know, so you had a whole new group that you were addressing. Mm -hmm. And it was a success right away. Right. So it became the way to do it. So the second year that I worked on the covers, I think that there was one or two models and the rest of, you know, it was a very quick change.
0: How did that change your job?
1: Well, you don't have... First of all, you don't have a, a you know, expert colleague with you, right. which is the model, because the girls right. are amazing. Yeah. And, you know, they're with you every step of the way, and so much a part of the decision and the process of The collaboration. The, the, the yeah. collaboration of the photograph. So you have, you know, you have a whole different set of characters. You have the agents, and you have the PRs, <laughs> and you have the personality of the celebrity themselves, and you have the fit... Uh, a fit question, of course... And you have a, a, you know, a kind of integrity that involves bringing the celebrity to Vogue, to what Vogue represents, Mm -hmm. and Vogue coming to what the celebrity represents. Right. And they they can be quite different. Yes. So the marriage is interesting, (laughs) and it is, I think it's been very successful.
0: You have recently moved to be a contributing editor,
1: and Mm -hmm. you've talked about that that was scary at first. I've been so fortunate because I've landed in places that really were home to me. Yeah. I mean, Calvin Klein was definitely home to me. Harper's Bazaar was definitely home to me. And so was Vogue. I mean, Vogue, I'm, I'm very much a Vogue girl. I, uh, I share a lot of the DNA of the brand. Mm-hmm. And the brand has evolved and is changing the way everything is is changing today. Having kind of the reinforcement that you have when you are literally part of it, to the extent that I was as the fashion director for almost 20 years, mm-hmm. And having that change. I mean, i'm I still am at vogue. I'm still in the meetings. I'm still there. Mm-hmm. But it's forcing me to think about what's next. and what are you and what is interesting? what's what's looking interesting to you? Well, I, I would really like to work. I think that what the fashion industry is addressing today, which where everyone is addressing it, is sustainability and how yeah. we're going to go forward producing simply everything on the earth, not right. just what we're going to wear, right. And I would be very interested in working in, in you know any capacity mm-hmm. with a designer or a company or, you know, I've been to the Copenhagen summit for two years. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of very positive developments. Yeah. And I just think they need to be encouraged.
0: Vogue seems like an incredible place, but for 20 years to work there, I think you probably didn't have a lot of space to think about anything else. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it may be scary, but also really exciting to have that opening to yes. even think about. I mean, I'm sure you haven't even had a minute to think about what you would want to do for 20
1: years. Yeah, no. I mean, it, you, it, it was busy. It was, yeah. <laughs> you were always busy at Vogue. You always had, you know, your hands full.
0: How did you manage being a working mother? Did you have people along the way that
1: showed you that, or was it just your mother? I think that one of the things that I was very fortunate to get, however I got it, was the work ethic. Yeah. And that, you know, Mrs. Reland absolutely... And forced that and encouraged it, but I already had it. That's why that, yeah. that plug in was so easy for me. It was such a good fit. And I think that that could probably came from my mother. Mm. I never saw mommy idle, ever. Yeah. She always was doing something that she was engaged in and that she obviously was interested in and that she was tireless doing. And it's one thing I've always said to my children, I hope they have heard it, which is I have never been bored. <laughs> because there's always something that you can do yeah that, that is a wonderful thing to do which sounds kind of like you know naff but there is truth to it I think that you know once again it is being a mother a working mother is a challenge there's no question to it I remember when I had Evie thinking that I am inventing time it was so interesting because mm-hmm. you know you have this day that is jam-packed and then all of a sudden you need to take 20 minutes out to nurse yes do you remember this yes I do and it was like wait a minute where am I going to get this 20 minutes you invent the time yeah it was crazy and I I just thought it was kind of miraculous but the whole process of having children is miraculous yes I mean you're you're a walking miracle you're walking around (laughs) is a miracle and you just are overwhelmed by it and I was so fortunate to have my children I was I really knew how lucky I was because I was 40 when I had uh, a colon at that time you know, he's in his 20s now. I was considered high risk. Today, right. it is absolutely not high risk. Right. I was really, really, really fortunate, and I knew it. And I, every, you know, moment of being able to just have it be part of me yeah. was sacred. So, you know, no matter how, you know, I used to, <laughs> I used to get a freezer put in my hotel room. And I used to freeze the milk and bring it back yeah. with dry ice into a chest <laughs> into America, and the customs guys would stop me and they'd say, "What's what's in the chest?" And I'd say, "Well, <laughs> actually, it's mother's milk." And they didn't—they never even questioned it. They never—they never looked beyond that answer. Tony, when when do you feel like you're at your best? The answer sounds incredibly obnoxious, but <laughs> absolutely, it's true. I'm at my best when I'm doing things for other people. Yeah. I I find that it is more fun to put together to surprise somebody or to think about something that they, you know, you remember that they liked. I particularly like to do it for my children and my family. But it's fun, there's a fun factor to that. And I think that is when I'm at my best. Is there something
0: that people don't know about you that you wish they did?
1: I love to cook. You I do? do. Love to cook. I love to cook. I love to cook too. And I love to go to the farmers market and I love everything organic, you know. I you know, don't forget I was a hippie from the start. <laughs> so I have been doing this for many, many years and I, you know, take my little uh, compostables to the farmers market three times a week, four times a week and I, you know, take all my little rinds and bits of things and I find it very satisfying because there you, you know, we all should be doing it, you know. I mean again, it sounds so obnoxious, but there is a great satisfaction. To even a small step today, especially with, yeah. with whatever, if everybody, you know, it's the old cliche, if everybody did a little bit of something, yeah. it would amount to a lot. Was
0: there a game-changing moment in your life?
1: I think a big uh, game-changer for me was getting sick and becoming a single mom. I am not unique. You know, it has happened to so yeah. many people, and I have been enormously lucky because it's 20 years later. Mm-hmm. But it's... it. It really teaches you how to live. It's as yeah. simple as it is, right? You just, there are certain things you have to do when you have children. Your responsibility is to the children. I remember thinking that when I was diagnosed and I you know, went through surgery and all of that stuff and you know, went through chemotherapy and the whole bit, i thinking, you know, I'm absolutely not dying. I have two children, two Too young much children. <laughs> and I am, there's no way that I'm going to die. That's just not going to happen. It sounds like your mom, too, that sort of, too busy, too many things. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's scary. And then you, you know, you learn from that and you actually, you know, it, it is a way of appreciation that you, you that is beyond description because you just are so appreciative mm-hmm. yeah. to be with your children.
0: We, uh, we ask everybody on the podcast what they wore at a prom. Did rarely have a
1: prom? Brearley did not really have a prom. Did you go to was. a prom? Well, you know, Brerley was an all-girls school, yes. and our brother school was uh, collegiate. Yeah. I wonder if I even went to the prom. I, th- I think there was—I mean, there was the Goddard Gaieties, right? There was something called the Goddard Gaieties. And what and did you wear? You I remember? think I wore some snappy little thing. You know, I was into fashion at that point. <laughs> you I'm were sure. into it. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah because yeah. of the uniform,
0: because you, there were so few instances where you could actually wear. Well, no, Something but don't forget, we
1: broke the uniform code. My okay. class, you know. We oh, really? Were the class, your whole you class know, we were We were the class that broke the uniform code. You know, we were the rebels. We got every week, got into trouble all the time. <laughs> I had, you know, I went from the uniform to a pair of blue wide whale corduroy pants that I never took off. I love wide whales. And, you know, we were, yeah, I mean, I was into fashion at that point. Absolutely. I mean, I was modeling. So I was, I was totally into fashion. Yeah.
0: Do you love fashion now?
1: I do. For yourself? Well, for myself, I've, I've you, made it very easy for yeah. myself. You know, it's a bit of a... Uniform. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's back to a uniform. It just makes it easier. I know. You know, you're busy, you have other things to do, and I, I just think it's easier.
0: Thank you so, so, so much.
1: Well, it's a pleasure. I, I must say, it's a real pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Make sure to pick up a copy of Tani's new book at Diesel Bookstore in the Brentwood Country Mart. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda.